we hear this from the speakers? No? Okay. Yeah. Well, if you'll please join me and stand as we read uh, God's Word. You can find it on, in your pew Bibles on page 369. It's 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. God's word says, Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman had returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. Good morning, as as Randy introduced me earlier. My name is Matt Cohn, and I'm an EPC church planter in Smyrna, Georgia, which will be familiar to you if, one, you're a native of Atlanta, or two, you're a fan of the Atlanta Braves, as we're located right where they just built the new Atlanta Braves Stadium. Now, I do want to thank you for receiving and for accepting me and this collar and the attire that I have on here. Uh, the heart behind it was more a matter of just to remove any of anything that I would bring as far as my attire goes, as far as wearing like a really fancy coat or fancy shirt or something along, along those lines. I was just thinking to myself, what's as plain Jane as I can go? Now, of course, in doing that, though, I did have to show a little bit of style or have a little bit of flair. And Randy, I think, looked with disgust over when he saw my socks. And so I don't think that everybody would be able to see them. So I'm not going to show them now, but they are... University of Georgia, two-time national champion, socks. And I was, I was, yes, preach, thank you. And I was so excited driving down Randolph, and I drove by what is the Atwood house, and there's a big flag out there that's got the, the two-time national champions on there. So I was like, I am in good company here. So now, if I haven't offended you already, uh, we, will, we will continue anyways. My, my wife and daughter, so my wife Tiffany, We've been married for eight years, and we have a one-year-old daughter named Mira, and we, my wife and I at least, we lived in Smyrna, again, where we're going to plant the church, or we have actually now moved, and we're about three weeks into planting the church. We chose that location, and we, we could have gone anywhere in the Presbytery of the Southeast that we felt like the Lord was leading us to, but we chose that particular location because we actually lived there for 10 years prior to 2020, and we had moved, and I'll share a little bit about that story of moving, but it was home for us. Uh, it's, it's part of the Presbytery. We know the people. We know the culture. We know the current state of the church and the spirituality of a lot of the people as well. And so uh, the Lord, as we had moved away, just really never let it escape our minds and our memories of what we had actually left. And so we're very excited to be going back where we know and are so familiar with it. 
And I say all of that, especially in context to the Atlanta Brave Stadium, to say that if you uh, are ever driving through Atlanta or you're actually going to a Braves game or something like that, just to ask you to think about us and ask you to pray for us and the work that God has called us to. And the name of the church is, is Waterstone Church. And I'm happy to talk about where we got that name from sometime if you'd like as well. Now, I'm really honored to be here with you all in Huntsville this morning. I have many great memories of Huntsville growing up. I went to space camp for not once but twice and uh, really loved eating all the dried ice cream while I was there and pretending like I was flying a spaceship through outer space. I did, I will confess that I thought when I went to space camp that they'd put me in one of those chambers that would be like free-floating zero-gravity chambers. And so when I got there and I realized, no, that's just when you're in planes and they're like free-falling and that wasn't going to happen, that I was a little disappointed, but still had an incredible experience. Uh, It was fun to be there for that. And then also it's just fun to be here too because as we've been exploring church planning, we've been doing a lot of demographic research, mostly within our presbytery. But I'll say that if if Huntsville was in the presbytery of the southeast, Huntsville would have been one of the top probably two besides Atlanta, which is we're so familiar with, locations that we would have explored to start a new church because we've just heard so many incredible things about what's going on here in the city. And I worked on staff with crew at Georgia Tech for five years, and a couple of the guys that I discipled while I was there have actually moved to Huntsville for jobs, one of them with Blue Origin and another one with the military, and I've just heard so many great things from them too about all the things that God is doing here in Huntsville. And I've actually heard, you can confirm whether this is true or not, that Huntsville is now the largest city in the state of Alabama. Getting a lot of head nods. So, I mean, yeah, just really incredible things that are going on. So to say anything, I don't know how what your feeling is being Huntsville local, but from the outside, as, as church planters are kind of looking and exploring options, Huntsville is, is pretty up there. Now, before I came, or we, my family, came into the EPC, I served with another Presbyterian denomination, and and I was actually hired by a church in that denomination uh, in 2020, so this is when we transitioned away from Smyrna, and we moved out west to be their church planting resident. And this is going to be a little jarring. We're going to take a quick, like, whoa, where did that come from? And as much as you might feel that, imagine how much we felt that, too, in the moment. But uh, when we sold our house, when we moved out there, We were very excited for what we felt like God was calling us to, felt like we were pursuing him and the whole thing. It was covered with prayer, only to be told by those pastors on the first day of the residency, or what was supposed to be the first day of the residency, to be told, Matt, we don't want to do this with you anymore. You just aren't worth it to us. Talk about a punch in the gut, right? Uh, That was very difficult to hear. Again, we'd moved halfway across the country. We'd put our hopes in the opportunity. Um, Again, we had covered it in prayer, and we were going to be doing this around my family as well, who uh, are non-Christians, and our hopes of them being able to experience uh, Jesus through us and the church that we had prayed he would birth through us, uh, we had to to die to that. Only to be told then, even by one of those pastors a couple weeks later, just having a follow-up conversation about, how did this happen? To be, set, to be told, I imagine you feel like you've been in an emotional car wreck, and it's going to take a little bit for y'all to heal from the emotional whiplash of coming out here and just, bam, what just happened? And I was like, yeah, yeah, you think? That's exactly how we feel. Now, we ended up spending 10 months out in this particular location just trying to heal and trying to understand what and why this had happened. 
And over those 10 months, God was actually very kind to give us faith that he was actually at work in the midst of this, that there was a plan and a purpose to it. But I mean, I'll confess to you now that that didn't really make it any easier. I had never had a, a night up until uh, that point, at which I was 39 at that point, I'd never had a night where I was up all night just because I couldn't fall asleep. Um, I, I had stayed up all night before, right, but it had always been because I had wanted to. But here now, I think it happened eight or nine times while we were out there for those 10 months. I just couldn't sleep. Uh, there was so much anxiety and um, hurt going on. And so every day and every single night while we were there, we were just longing for restoration. And we longed for what had been lost and what we had hoped to be true. We had longed for it to be restored. And somehow, now amazingly, three years later, almost to the day, this happened in September of 2020, I actually have an opportunity now to stand before you and to testify to God's goodness in our lives and ways that we saw him work. And then, of course, Lord willing, we all together now can look forward to what we hope that he does through us as we move, have now transitioned to Smyrna to start a new church there. So, restoration and testimony have been two themes that God has deeply embedded into our lives over these last three years. And this morning, as we read in our text in 2 Kings, we will see that restoration and testimony were true of the Shunammite woman and also true of Elisha as well. And, and those are going to be our two points. So if you take notes or anything like that and kind of write a first bullet point, restoration, second bullet point, testimony. So point number one, restoration. Well, as we look at the text, where do we see restoration this morning? Well, if you're reading in the ESV like I did, uh, you'll see that word restore is actually used five times. And every single time that it's used, it's used in direct reference to the Shunammite woman. The first four times, she, it's actually a part of her identity. She is referred to as the woman whose son Elisha restored to life. And then the fifth time, it's actually the king who is saying to one of his officials, hey, restore everything that was hers and everything that would have been hers too had she stayed here for these last seven years. But is that the only place that we see restoration in our text this morning? Well, let's take a look at the context. First, who is the Shunammite woman? Well, we first meet her in 2 Kings chapter 4, so that's four chapters prior to this, and she's the wealthy wife to an older husband, and, and they don't have any children. And that's notable for them, and particularly her, back in that time. Now, she showed great kindness to the prophet Elisha because she asked her husband to build a room for Elisha on top of their house because Elisha would co commonly, often, travel between her town as he would go from one location to Mount Carmel, which is where he was living at the time as, as one of the prophets. Now, Elisha, he decided he wanted to return the kindness, and he, knowing that um, her situation was pretty fragile, pretty dire, and that she had an older husband with no son to pass on his inheritance to, and so he sought to return the kindness by actually giving her the ability to conceive. And so he allowed her to conceive a son to be the heir of her older husband's estate. Only as you continue to read in 2 Kings, when the child was just a couple years old, probably somewhere between the ages of four and seven, he's out in the fields with his father and he, he says to his dad, you know, my head's starting to hurt. And so his dad sends him back to the house and back to his mother. And by noon of that day, in his mother's arms, the child passed away. And he died in an, of an unknown illness. 
And she quickly ran, and I say quickly, but still, Mount Carmel was probably at least two, maybe even three days away from where she was at. So, but as quickly as she could, she ran to get Elisha. And then if you're familiar with the story, you see that Elisha actually, when he got there, he restored her son to life. Now this morning in chapter 8, we fast-forwarded maybe like seven to ten years, and we see that it's likely her husband has now died because he's not named anywhere in the text at all. And then that means that she's now a wealthy widow, uh, but she does have a son, and he's inherited his father's estate. But despite that, she's still experiencing and living in the midst of a lot of fragility because we see that Elisha showed her kindness by warning her of this upcoming famine that was about to happen for seven years so that she could sustain herself and her son. So that's the Shunammite woman. Now, who is Elisha? Well, Elisha is this powerful prophet who followed closely, directly, actually, after the famous prophet, arguably more famous prophet, at least for us, Elijah. You know, only Elijah being more famous, he tends to get all the credit. Uh, because he's named a lot in the New Testament, and the New Testament continues to refer back to him a bunch. But Elisha actually asked for and was given a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And the text in 2 Kings, it testifies to this, actually, because it says that Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. So in many respects, the text is honoring, giving more credit to Elisha as a powerful prophet, even than it did Elijah. And then while both Elijah And Elisha restored children from the dead to life. It was only Elisha that actually gave somebody the ability to create life in the first place. And so Elisha was an even more, in some respects, significant prophet back in that time frame, certainly, than Elijah. But Elisha's life, like Elijah's, it wasn't always smooth. Now, if you're familiar at all with 2 Kings chapter 6 in particular, just two two chapters earlier you know that the famine, the seven-year famine, was caused because of war. And as a result, the king needed somebody to blame the country's circumstances on. And so he chose to use Elisha as the scapegoat for the war. And he publicly declared in front of everybody, May God kill me if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So this public declaration by the king, by the most powerful person in all of Israel, disgraces and it humiliates Elisha. And if you keep reading later in the chapter, you see that he's actually hunted by the king's officials before giving a prophecy about how God is actually going to end the famine on the very next day. We'll talk a little bit about the timing of all of that in a little bit later. So that's a, that's a Shunammite woman, and that's Elisha. Now, in order for something to be restored, of course, it first has to be lost. And we can lose a lot more than just our material goods. Again, back in 2 Kings 4, the Shunammite, she lost her son. And of course, that doesn't just mean that she lost her child, but she also lost her, for- her future. Her fortune, for sure, but also her future. And Elisha, of course, restored him to life. Now, the widow, though, she lost everything that she owned. And as a result, she also lost her social status in Israel. So she's coming back before the king. She essentially has no social status whatsoever. And for a short period of time, Elisha, of course, he lost relationships. Due to the king's public declaration of asking for his head on a plate, he lost influence. And then, of course, he nearly lost his life, too. But here, in what we just read, we see that the Shunammite woman's possessions and her social honor are restored by the king. 
And we see the king restored Elisha as well because he had invited Elisha's servant Gehazi to share stories about Elisha in his royal court. And this likely happened in the midst of a big party that the king was throwing. And so he was giving tremendous honor to Elisha by having Gehazi share stories. And so the Shunammite woman, she experienced material and social restoration, and Elisha experienced political and social restoration. So what they had once lost had now been restored. Now, the idea of restoration, it resonates pretty well today too, doesn't it? Material loss, social loss, and political loss pervade the world. And to make things even more complicated or more difficult, that oftentimes when you lose one, you lose others too. They're intertwined with one another. Now, many of us today, we want the church to be restored to its glory days. You know, whenever you tend to think the glory days of the church was. As Randy probably knows well, a lot of church planters tend to think that the glory days of the church was the 30s. And by that, I mean the actual 30s, like 35 A.D. to like 45 A.D. or sometime in there. Because why? You know, so many times church planners, as we're casting vision for our new church, we talk about Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, when everybody shared everything in common, if you're familiar at all with that. Many of us in the South can certainly be tempted to believe that the glory days of the church was the 1950s, the 1960s. You know, we oftentimes speak fondly of that era, uh, believing that it's, it's one of the rare instances when the church actually mattered. In people's lives, it was a time when everybody was kind to one another, when, when people actually had character and had integrity. You know, maybe some of us, we just long for restoration of peace. We want peaceful lives back. Certainly peaceful lives, maybe like the 80s and the 90s before the internet hit the scene. And since the internet, we've just kind of been inundated with every single major disaster and world catastrophe that happens in in real time, too. And it just kind of feels like it never ends, right? But how about us? How about everybody who is sitting in Central this morning? Well, let's just take losing a job, as I did. You know, when I lost my job a few years ago out West, we didn't just lose a source of income. We also lost, uh, or my reputation was actually really hurt, too. You know, for a while, anytime that I talked to anybody in the church, whether they were in church leadership or, well, it certainly as I continued to interview then for other church planting residency opportunities, I was treated with white gloves. I was treated as kind of like an other, like we're going to keep you this far apart until we hear your story and we understand what happened and we decide what we would have done if we were in that situation. And so my reputation was definitely damaged. We lost our dreams, like I said before, of planting a church near my non-Christian family, and we also lost ministry partners. I had been on staff with Crew for six years by that point, and there were people who had been a part of our journey that entire time that no longer wanted to partner or be associated with somebody who'd been let go by a church. Now maybe y'all at Central, maybe you don't lose jobs because maybe you guys own the companies. I don't know. But even if that's the case... Earlier, I did mention losing a reputation, and I know that no matter who you are, your reputation has been damaged at different points in your life, whether that was at no fault of your own or whether it's just because you actually did do something that was either unwise or just naive. That happens too. And occasionally, we will do things that are just plain dumb. And there's consequences for those choices. Regardless of where our heart was at in those moments, there are consequences for those choices. And so right or wrong, just or unjust, public or private, all of our reputations have taken hits at different points in our lives. And the unfortunate thing 
is that they will continue to take hits from time to time. Now, I just mentioned that we also had to, again, die to the dream of planting a church around my family. I'm confident also that everybody in here has had at some point to let a dream die as well. You know, maybe for you it was the dream of getting married or it's the dream of having a thriving marriage and growing old together. It could be the dream of having children or or maybe even the dream of or longing of having children who are actually following the Lord their entire lives. You know, maybe some of you dreamt of being a successful artist or athlete or, you know, when you were younger, you certainly thought that your life would be in a different place. Your career would be in a different place at this age. I just want you to know if that's you today, you are not alone. Everybody in here has had some sort of dream like these that they've had to die to at a different time. And when that or any other number of dreams that are out there happen, the gut punch inside of us is the longing for restoration. It's the longing for what has been lost to be returned. And we know that God is in the business of restoring his people because we saw that in the life of the Shunammite and we saw that as well in the life of Elisha. But how were they restored? And that leads us to our second point, which is testimony. And we see that they were restored by ultimately testifying about another. They testified about God himself. Now the Shunammite woman, she testified about what God had done in her life before. And Elisha testified about what God was about to do. Now let's look at the text and let's see what I mean. So the Shunammite, she went to appeal to the king for her house and for her land. And, and this was normal because she had vacated her property And according to the political system or the government back then, vacated property actually fell under the authority of the king. And the king would manage that property for a period of, ironically, seven years uh, before he could decide what he wanted to do with it. At that point, he could sell it. He could keep it for himself. He could really do whatever he wanted. And even though um, this was a normal process of going to, once you have vacated property, going to the king, certainly within the first seven years, and asking for your land back, we do have to remember that she's a widow, and she had fled Israel, and she had abandoned her house and her land. And so, as a result of that, she was on pretty thin legal ice to begin with. And again, I mentioned the seven years because that's how long she was gone. So we we were right at the cusp of time of which she would have no more, even the narrowest margins of legality as far as right to her land and her belongings back. And so she was on very thin legal ice. And I would even say, certainly because she didn't have a husband at the time, that nobody would have blinked an eye if the king had just completely ignored her or just straight up said, I'm sorry, you can't have your land back. So that's the kind of perilous situation that she was in. Humanly speaking, then, of course, too, her timing could not have been worse as far as going to the king because she's going to appeal to him in the midst of a party. And, you know, I would imagine that the last thing on the king's mind in the midst of this party is going to be his judicial responsibilities. You know, how do you typically feel when you're hanging out with people and somebody comes to you with a work-related questions? Uh, It probably can be a little annoying, right? And so I think it would have been really easy for him to have just gotten annoyed and just dismissed her in the midst of this party. And yet, in our text, we see here she is. She has done everything wrong, and yet she's actually given an audience with the king. And now I wonder, as as I'm in her shoes, I wonder how she's feeling as she enters into the castle or or his abode, I guess we'll put it that way. Uh, And she realizes, I'm actually going to have an opportunity to speak to him and to make my appeal right now. You know, what sorts of things are you typically feeling before you have a really big presentation to make or you're about to say something to somebody that's really important? 
knowing that she was going to be coming back at some point, she's probably thought about this for months, maybe even years, and even rehearsed what she was going to say to him. You know, she probably was thinking to herself, oh, man, I've, I've only got one shot. I really need to impress the king. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell him who my husband was so he knows who I am. Well, if that doesn't work, I'm just going to dazzle him with all the things that I know or all the different places that I've visited and all the experiences that I've had. He's going to see that I'm a valuable Israelite, and he's going to want me back here in Israel. But, of course, in this situation, none of that was going to work because she didn't realize it, of course, when she walked in, but she actually ended up walking into a room that was just a buzz with activity. And that activity was, and all the conversation and commotion was actually about her. And she didn't realize it until it was too late because she got outed by Gehazi, by Elisha's servant. Because the text says that Gehazi said, seeing her as he's sharing stories about how Elisha had raised somebody's son to life, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Of course, the room's already, uh, there's a lot of commotion going on in it already. I would imagine that when he said that, and she had kind of rounded the corner, that everybody in the room just kind of was like, what? And all looked over at her together in unison and stopped talking. And if I was her, I would have blushed and I would have laughed very uncomfortably. This is not the way that I would have imagined this conversation going or this appeal going for all those years. And yet the text tells us, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. Now we have to imagine this a little bit, but when I read in the text, she told him, it sounds to me like she was just being very straightforward in what she says to him. I don't really think, as I imagine this, that she embellished the story that much. There wasn't a lot to embellish. The facts themselves were pretty incredible. I don't know that she tried to use eloquent language, but I also don't think she tried to minimize what had happened either. See, she just told him, and essentially, as I think about this, it just shared the facts and essentially said, my son was dead, and yet now he's alive. You know, there's nothing more to say. There's nothing less to say either. And so rather than actually trusting in herself and her own ingenuity to get her house and her land back, she trusted in what the Lord had done in her life before. And so she shared her story, which was the good news that, yes, God had raised her son from the dead. Now, what about Elisha? Well, as I said earlier, Elisha was hunted down by the king's officials. And when they actually got to him and were about to take his head off, he gave testimony to what God was going to do, which was to end that severe seven-year famine on the very next day. Can you imagine being one of those officials or being in Elisha's um, presence at that time and hearing that prophecy? You know, when it eventually got back to the king, the king thought that it was ludicrous. And I bet that everybody else who was there and around him just kind of thought that he was trying to save himself. And the irony is that if if the prophecy didn't come true, he would have then been considered a false prophet. And it wouldn't have just been the king who had a right to kill him and take his head off, but anybody could as well. Because in that day and age, that was how you knew whether somebody was a true prophet or a false prophet. Did the prophecy actually come true? Now, I bet Elisha himself, knowing what was going to happen to him if the famine wasn't ended the next day, was very tempted to run away like his predecessor Elijah when Jezebel threatened to come after him. But unlike Elijah, again, Elisha, double spirit of Elijah, uh, unlike Elijah, Elisha stayed. He trusted. 
And then God actually did save him. And he saved everybody else too by actually ending the famine on the very next day. And if you'd like to, you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, Elisha testified to God's ability and God's intention to end the famine on the next day. And in doing so, Elisha himself was restored. And so the Shunammite and Elisha were restored by testifying about another. They shared the good news, one about what God had done in her life, and the other about what God was going to do the very next day. So what about us? What are things that we can testify to about what God has done in our lives? Well, whether you've always trusted in Jesus as your Savior, or whether you have uh, come to experience that saving faith later in life, you can certainly testify to how God brought you from death to life. You can also testify to things that he's taught you, or maybe even more helpful as you're talking with, uh, in particular, non-Christians. You can testify to things that he is currently teaching you. You you can also testify to ways that you've experienced his love or his presence in a really unique and powerful way. You know, maybe you were on a walk, or maybe you were on a hike, or doing something like that, and you just kind of felt this presence of God there. Or maybe you had a moment of laughter with a friend, or with one of your kids, or one of your grandchildren, and you just knew that God was laughing too. You can testify to those things. We can also testify, like Elisha did, to what we know God is going to do. So, for example, we know that one day God is going to reveal himself to the whole world. And while it may not be as popular to talk about these days, we also know that at some point he's going to judge everybody who has ever lived. We also know that for those who are in Christ, one day God is going to restore all of us into perfect communion with him and with one another as well in heaven. We also know that heaven is going to be a place with no more sickness, with no more tears or pain, and so it's going to be a place where the heart of everything that we have ever longed for is going to be fulfilled. And it's going to be fulfilled so much so that what we're experiencing today, the gut punches that we've all kind of felt a little bit as I've talked through some of this stuff today, is going to be a distant memory. Those things are going to be just a blip on the radar of eternity. And so those are beautiful things that we can testify to, beautiful things that resonate with all people, Christians and then even non-Christians as well. These are beautiful things that you guys can testify to starting tonight, it sounds like, with the Alpha Course and the dinners that you guys are going to be having. What an incredible opportunity and tie-in to what we're talking about this morning is what you guys are going to be moving into this evening. So I was very excited to see that, and we'll be praying for you guys as well with the Alpha Course. So to conclude, in our text today, the king, the king looks like a hero. I mean, he restored the Shunammite woman's house and land, and and he restored Elisha as well by asking Gehazi to tell stories about his exploits in the royal court. And yeah, I mean, I think if you just kind of look at these six verses, the king does some pretty heroic things. But if you've been listening carefully, you know that the king actually needed to be restored as well. Because remember when I said the king used Elisha as a scapegoat? And he blamed the terrible famine on him? Well, in that moment, the king was the impotent king who could not save Israel from the war or from the famine. Nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody wanted to be associated with him. He needed a scapegoat. But just one chapter later, he's hosting this extravagant party, and he's entertaining a bunch of guests, a bunch of very high-level, honored guests. So what happened in the interim? Well, now he's no longer the impotent king who reigned during a famine, but he's actually the powerful king who brought them through the famine. And so he's powerful again. 
He's popular again because he has been restored. No, the king is not the hero in our story. The real hero in our story is the greater king to come. The one who the Shunammite woman and Elisha ultimately down the road testified to. The king of kings, Jesus, who has no need for restoration because he himself is perfect. He is the greater king because rather than scapegoating his responsibility, he actually became our scapegoat and he took the responsibility for our sin on him so that we would not have to bear the consequences of it ourselves. And rather than going after God's people, as our king here in the text did to Elisha, he willingly laid his life down for them. And then rather than limiting what he restores to what's rightfully ours in the first place, one day Jesus is going to restore us to what's actually rightfully his, but was lost through the fall. See, Jesus is the one whose perfection we trust in, whose perfection we testify to, and whose perfection we long to enjoy for eternity in the ages to come. Friends at Central, at Waterstone Church in Smyrna, Georgia, we understand that there are things in everyone's lives that we hope are restored. Those things are always going to exist. But we also understand that while some of those things will actually be restored, sadly some things are never going to be restored this side of heaven. You know, again, our dream of planting a church in that original location around my family is likely never going to happen. But our longing for community and deep relationships that we thought would happen out there, has instead happened here. It's happened in the EPC. And you know, if not for what happened to us out there, we never would have met you. And it's such a privilege and an honor to be here and to have met you today and to continue, Lord willing, to get to know you. Now, I know that Jesus, uh, God, has done similar things in your lives as well as it relates to the things that you've experienced, gut punches of. And he's going to continue to do those things. And so I just ask, I encourage you to testify about those things. And start by testifying about them to one another. And then consider, just prayerfully consider, who else in your life would benefit from hearing about the ways God has restored you throughout your life? You know, after five, six years on staff with the campus ministry, talking to hundreds, if not thousands, of non-Christians in particular, those are actually things that non-Christians really appreciate hearing about. They, they normalize you. They make you more human as well, more accessible. And as you carry on, as you just continue to to go forward from here this morning uh, and and live your lives, continue to embrace those longings. Continue to, as you experience those gut punches, continue to think about where is Jesus in the midst of these things and embrace him in the midst of them because ultimately a day is going to come when we're not going to long for restoration anymore because it will be our reality for all of eternity. And it will be our reality for eternity because Jesus died for you and was restored himself to life again. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, for revealing it to us, and for the faithful passing down of it to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that in Christ we have full restoration, and we long, Lord, for that restoration to come now, even. Um, And we know that uh, you have given us each stories, and we pray certainly that You'd continue to help us to understand our stories, to give us opportunities to share their stories with others as well, and to, by the power of your Spirit, work through us in the lives of the non-believers who you have surrounded us with such that they, at some point, would come to know you in a personal way as well. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Worship calls us into service. So as we approach our week, let us all stand.